There are so many aspects of the Buddhist teachings about the nature of suffering and the possibility of freedom that resonate with our own common sense view of things, our own understanding of ourselves and of the world. Non-harming is the basic moral principle you know, of living together in harmony, whether locally or globally. This is easy to understand. The understanding that all things in our lives are changing and that the more we hold on, the more we grasp at things which in their nature will change, which is everything, the more we suffer. So that's, even if we can't quite do it yet, it's not hard to understand. But there's one aspect of the teachings that offers a profoundly different view of the world, profoundly different understanding of ourselves, and it's one that challenges our entire worldview. It's the understanding that makes the Buddha's enlightenment such an extraordinary event in all of the spiritual cultures of awakening. It's really what makes it in some sense so unique. And this is the deep understanding and realization of selflessness. In the Pali, the word is anatta. The understanding of the insubstantiality of all things. This realization of selflessness is the great liberating jewel of the Buddha's teachings. As the observing power of our mind gets stronger, we begin to see for ourselves that the self, the I, is not what we thought it to be. We begin to see directly for ourselves that the body is not self, that thoughts are not self, that emotions are not self, and that even awareness is not self. We begin to understand that the sense of I, this deeply rooted, this is a very deeply conditioned sense we have of I, of self. We begin to see, or begin to glimpse at least, have the understanding But the sense of self, sense of I, is a concept. It's a mental construction. It's a fabrication of our minds. And this comes, as we begin to glimpse this, it comes as both a great surprise that the I, the self, is a concept, both a great surprise and also a great relief. Now, all those troubling aspects of our personalities and other people's personalities. (laughs) And all the wonderful qualities as well, they don't belong to anyone. All are simply appearances, experiences, arising out of temporary conditions. And so the freedom of selflessness, the freedom of this realization was expressed by one Sri Lankan monk very succinctly. He said, no self, no problem. So tonight I would like to speak about how the mind creates this deeply held view of self. I mean, if it's not there, why are we so bound up in it? Because this is a very, this is a very deeply conditioned way of understanding things. I'd like to speak of how it's created and also how we can free ourselves from this very great illusion In order to understand how we create the sense of self, it's necessary to explore a little bit the nature of concepts, because it very much has to do with concepts. In our usual way of being in the world, we give a name or a concept to the arising experience. We look out and we see man, a woman, a house, a tree, a car, and these are all names that we give to things. 
But then our experience often becomes limited by the name. We begin to take the name for the thing itself. And our relationship to the experience often changes radically as our concepts change. So I'll just give one example, and this came from a yogi on a previous retreat uh, after they had heard this talk. There's a story illustrating this point. They said they had just moved into a new house, and just as they were moving in, they saw these wonderful kind of birds, you know, uh, which they weren't that familiar with, circling around. And they were, you know, quite happy to see that. And then they moved in, and they moved in, and they, they heard this chirping, you know, from the basement. And they thought, oh, great, you know, this little nest of birds. You know, and they, it, they were happy about that, you know, because they thought, this is great, it's like a good omen, and, you know, they were delighted. And so they heard the chirping, chirping, and, you know, the, the birds are there. And then, I don't know, maybe it was a week later, they had somebody do some uh, repair work in the basement, and the person came up and said, you know, your smoke detector is uh, broken, and it's just beeping. (laughs) And as soon as they thought of smoke detector, they couldn't stand the noise. And they had to get it fixed immediately. What changed? The only thing that changed was the concept. You know, when they thought it was birds, they were delighted. When they thought it was a faulty smoke detector, they were irritated. Well, this is a lot of our lives, you know. (laughs) We can see this tendency to solidify our view of the world through concepts in many areas, (coughs) many areas of life. And sometimes it's mildly humorous, as in that last example, but sometimes our attachment to concepts has disastrous consequences, very harmful consequences. So we really need to understand this process and how it's happening. So I'll just give you a few examples of the power of concepts in our lives. A very powerful one, and we see it at work in the world today with uh, creating some difficulties is the concept of place. You know, we have the idea that the earth is divided into countries, you know, separate countries, separate nations, the borders are you know, protected, people fight over borders. But this is a creation of our human mind. It's not that the earth itself is divided. You know, I had a friend who was traveling from Russia, from the West to India, and in those days she went through Russia and Iran. Uh, this was quite a while ago, in the 70s. Um, and she described a border crossing between Russia and Iran, and she said she came to this place. It was in the middle of, it was in the middle of no place. It was just like a desert, you know, completely arid, and there was a dry riverbed. And over the riverbed, there was this great big bridge half of which was green, half of which was red, a big gate in the middle. So just picture the scene. There's nothing around for miles. (laughs) And in the middle of this nothing, there's this big bridge with this gate, and then when she wanted to cross the border, you know, the guards from one side came, and then the guards from there, they opened the gate, she crossed, they stamped the passport. And it's kind of like a Fellini movie. (laughs) And yet, if she didn't get the stamp in the passport, would have been problematic. Now, how many wars have been fought over boundaries? This is just one example. It's in contrast to what you you may have read or seen pictures of when the astronauts, especially in the early years of the space program, were up in space, and many of them had near-mystical experiences of seeing the Earth as a whole. You know, it just took them out of our normal conceptual view of earth and division and nation where they see the unity of it and the beauty of that. Concepts can be limiting. 
Another concept very prevalent in the world and certainly in our society is the concept of ownership. We have the idea that we own things. Again, sometimes there's huge suffering. And just as an extreme example of this, this is a book I read a couple of years ago now. It's called King Leopold's Ghost. And it was about King Leopold of Belgium uh, back in the era of World War I uh, when what was then the Belgian Congo was a private, was considered by the international community a private domain of King Leopold. It's like he owned it. And the enormous amount of suffering you know, and exploitation and injustice. And the book is really an eye-opener. And it all stemmed from the fact that people were buying into this concept, you know, that somebody could own a country. So it's power. concepts are powerful on a sort of somewhat more mundane level. When I first came back from India after being there many years, you know, and practicing... This was in 1974. I came back to teach at Naropa Institute, and this was the first summer. And it was, it was big. It was like the Buddhist Woodstock. You know, it was really quite a big gathering of people and a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. And it was really the first big dissemination of Eastern teachings. And of all my friends in India, I was the first one back and the first one with a job. You know, I was teaching there. So as my other friends came back, they didn't have any place to stay. So, where to go? Oh, let's go visit, stay with Joseph in Boulder. You know, and I was in this small one-bedroom apartment. So, one after another, they started coming. And, and at first, I, yeah, I was working quite hard. And I was glad to see them. <laughs> but a little bit irritated. <laughs> that, you know, that they just kind of moved in. But they weren't leaving, so... <laughs> But at a certain point, I realized that all my suffering really was coming from the idea I had that the apartment was mine. And as soon as I let go of that idea, and it just became a shared space, it was no problem, because we had shared much smaller spaces in India. You know, we had lived in all kinds of tight circumstances, and it was completely fine there. It's only when I got caught by the notion, this is mine, and people are invading my space. The concept created the suffering. Let go of the concept, no problem. In case you think you're not too attached to the concept of ownership, just imagine what it would be like if you came into the hall and you found somebody sitting on your seat. (laughs) I'll bet there would be a moment... Because even in this kind of, you know, immediately we just have this sense of possessor, this is mine. So it's powerful. It's powerfully conditioned on many, many levels. An even more powerful concept, one that permeates our lives, conditions so much of how we are in the world and how we live. Powerful, powerful concept is the concept of time, the concept of past and future. Now this gets very interesting in meditation to really begin to unpack what this concept of time is. When you look carefully, you know, as you're sitting and walking going through the day, when you really look carefully, we begin to see that certain kinds of thoughts arise, memories, recollections, remembrances, the thoughts that are arising of a certain kind, a certain class, we create a concept in our mind, past, and then very cleverly somehow, we take this concept past, which we've created to describe these thoughts or images, we take this concept and somehow toss it back behind us as if the past is a reality back there that we've come from. We do the same thing with future. We're kind of going along and there are thoughts of planning, imagining, anticipating 
a class of thoughts or images, we put a concept on it future, toss it out ahead of us as if the future is a reality, which we are going to meet someday. Now this is not a discussion about the metaphysics of time. That's, that's another discussion. It is about how we experience time. What is our actual experience of past or future? Our experience of it is as a thought or image in the moment. It's the only way we experience it. And yet, for most of us, we carry the concept, the notion of past and future around like mountains on our shoulders. We're going through life tremendously burdened. How much of the time that you've been here have you been lost in the past or lost in the thoughts of future? 90% of the time? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. A lot. We spend a lot of our lives, and it's not only lost in it, we have all kinds of emotional relationships to it. Regret or excitement or anticipation or fear or whatever. And yet when we look at what's really happening, all that's happening is that it's a thought in the moment. A thought is very light, weighs almost nothing. The concept of past and future that we carry with us as if it's some reality is huge. And it is so freeing to begin to see them for what they are. So just as an example that you've experienced here very directly, pay attention to time thoughts about the retreat. For example, you're in the middle of a retreat and maybe you're having you know, a hard day. Mind's restless, the body is uncomfortable. So the thought comes, oh, a few more days. We'll never make it. <laughs> and so we create the concept of future, you know, a few more days, and then we have this whole reaction, which then actually conditions our experience. You know, we feel weighed down, we feel depressed, we feel whatever. But what just happened? It was just a thought. All that happened was a thought came into the mind, oh, a few more days, I can't imagine it. If we had seen that for being just a thought, the thought comes and goes, no problem. And then we take the next step or the next breath. But we believe it. We create the concept and then live in it. Or it could be, you know, you're having a great time. You're concentrated, still, calm. Oh, only a few more days. I wish it were three more months. Same thing. on a more subtle level, and here's, if you really tune into this, you could, you could really get enlightened. <laughs> because not only do we get attached to the concept of past and future, we get attached to the concept of present and the present moment. You know, and so much of the instruction to come back to the present moment. But that too is a concept. This is from the Dhammapada, which is the collection of verses you know, from the Buddhist teachings, where the Buddha says, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the further shore, enlightenment. With the mind wholly liberated, you go beyond birth and death. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. Concepts of place, of ownership, of time. Concepts of self-image. Now, how many, how many concepts of self-image have we created for ourselves and then are bound, imprisoned by that particular image? Now, we create a sense of ourselves in our role, in our status in the world, in our profession, you know, as being a smart person, a stupid person, or whatever kind of person. Create an image of spiritual, you know, I'm a good yogi, I'm a bad yogi, which can change a hundred times a day. 
we had a we early on when IMS first opened, we had a staff person here um, who was from Georgia, a very beautiful woman. Uh, she was great. She just had this incredible vibrancy and a wonderful person. And she was a cook. And just in the course of you know life, staff life, people kept responding to her or relating to her as the cook. You know, and at one point, she just kind of, this was in a staff meeting, she kind of declaimed in this great southern accent, which I cannot replicate, I am not the kitchen. <laughs> because people were, people were putting that on her, you know, as if she were the kitchen. <laughs> and it was just a great line, I am not the kitchen. We're not anything. We create these self-images, or, or other people project them onto us, and it's so freeing to let go. Concepts become limiting even about things that seem more fundamental, things that we think really are true. For example, age, and gender, and race and culture. Interesting to begin to see these as concepts as well. You know, what color is your mind? How old is your breath? Is the pain in your back male or female? You know, when we're on a certain level of experience, and it's not to say that these differences don't exist on a certain level, because they do point to certain differences of experience, but there's a much more fundamental level where even these categories are seen as concepts, where they disappear. The problem is we often become so identified with these concepts. Oh, I'm, I'm this old. I'm of this race, or I'm of this gender, and this is who I am. You know, and it's reflective of some things, but it's not reflective of the deepest reality. When we don't connect with the fundamental realities underneath all these concepts, what happens is we foster divisiveness and conflict. Now, where does, basically, where does prejudice come from? Where does racial prejudice or sexism prejudice or ageism pre- prejudice come from? There's a very fundamental root to it all, which I call otherism. You know, it's just when we see somebody as other in one way or another. And that's the root of the conflict. That's the root of the divisiveness. And this otherism all comes from the attachment we have to the most deeply rooted concept. This place and ownership and time you know, in self-image. The most deeply rooted concept, which is the root cause of suffering for ourselves and others, is the strong attachment we have to the concept of self. Now what happens? We create a reference point for all experience. The idea that there is someone behind experience to whom it is all happening. That's the creation of the concept of self. We create a reference point, an idea, that there's someone behind experience to whom the experience is happening, rather than simply being in the experience itself. The Buddha expressed this very clearly in one of his one of his great teachings. He said, "In the scene, at a scene with the eyes, there is just what is seen. In the heard, there is just what is heard. In the sensed, that is smell and taste and touch, there is just what is sensed. In the thought, there is just what is thought." 
Everything is just what it is. The concept of self, the creation of self, the creation of I is extra. We are adding that through our own minds. In the book, The Hours by Michael Cunningham, which is a really beautiful book, he wrote, everything, has, everything in the world has its own secret name, a name that cannot be conveyed in language, but is simply the sight and feel of the thing itself. You know, and when I read that, it's, that's it exactly. The secret name of things is not a mental construct. It's the direct experience of the thing itself, the sight and the feel of the thing itself. So I'll just give a couple of examples. As Steve mentioned yesterday, last night in his talking a little bit about selflessness, the idea of the rainbow, which is a great example of selflessness. It's just, there's an appearance coming out of conditions One of my other favorite examples, which I have been talking about for 30 years and cannot let a course go by without mentioning it, is the Big Dipper. You know, on a clear night, you go out and look up at the sky. And if you're at all familiar with any constellation, you probably recognize that one. You know, you look up and you see the Big Dipper. Okay, this, we're close to the end of the retreat, and this, you can consider this question the final exam. <laughs> Is there really a Big Dipper up in the sky? <laughs> there is no Big Dipper. <laughs> there are certain stars, certain, we see points of light in a certain relationship to one another. The mind creates a concept, Big Dipper, and then applies it magically to what we say. But what's very interesting, so ingrained are we by that concept, it's very interesting to go out at night, look up at the sky, and see if you cannot see the Big Dipper. It's very difficult. No, it is. It's like those stars just jump out in that pattern because the concept has become so ingrained. And it's fine, you know, the concept, as with all of the ones I mentioned, I don't mean to imply that concepts are not useful. They can be extremely useful, and we couldn't live without them. What I am suggesting is that we don't want to be imprisoned by concepts. We want to see them for what they are. What happens when we're so imprisoned by the notion of Big Dipper that absolutely obscures the perception of the sky as a whole, of all the stars as a whole, undivided, like seeing the earth as a whole. Well, if it's that hard not to see Big Dipper, you can imagine how difficult it is not to see the concept of self. It's been so ingrained you know, to see through that, to see the conceptual nature of it, to see that it's a construct, really takes some very careful attention, careful observation, which in one sense is what we're doing here. So even if we begin to get a sense theoretically, or even a glimpse experientially, you know, of the secret name of things, the selfless nature of things, things just as they are, you know, a sight, a sound, a sensation, a thought, an emotion. Still, I think almost all of us have this very deep felt sense of I. It feels like there's a self, doesn't it? I mean, we live our lives, even if we kind of know or understand, well, maybe things really are selfless and it's a construct, but it feels like there's a self. So what is that about? Why is that feeling so strong if, in fact, it is just a concept? Again, all of this comes through the power of our own observation. But we begin to see that the felt 
sense of I arises in every moment when we are identifying with the momentary arising experience. So I'll just give you some examples of how we do that. We see it very clearly in our identification with the body. And this is, this is an arena where we identify a lot and we take the body to be self, to be who we are. Now on the superficial level of perception, the body feels so solid, you know, and so me. We wake up in the morning, we look in the mirror, we see the reflection of the body, that's me again, you know. But when we look more closely, when we take the time to look more closely, we see that the body is not something in itself that we can really claim as being I or mine. You know, as it changes from an infant to a child to a young person, you know, and a young adult and an adult and an old person, which of those bodies is self? And the body is changing all the time. Which one is I? If we take a look inside the body really more closely and see all the systems, you know, the circulatory system and the skeleton and the muscular and all just all the systems of the body, the notion of self begins to dissolve a little more. You know, I had a friend who had laparoscopic surgery on a fibroid tumor, and they kind of go in, as you probably know, in this miniaturized video camera, and you know, with laser, cutting, cutting away the fibroid, and kind of the reward of the surgery is you get the video. <laughs> she really had no interest in looking at it. <laughs> I was really interested. You know, so I slip it into the VCR, and it was incredible. You know? It was like a journey inside the body. You know, so it was amazing. I mean, you saw kind of the organs and the blood and just everything. Very different perspective on the body. (laughs) When we're looking at it in this way, oh yes, the gallbladder is me. The liver is me. I I don't think so. (laughs) But somehow we wrap it all nicely in skin. Yes, that's me. It's because we're not seeing deeply enough. You know, we're just kind of taking the superficial perception and then identifying with it, creating this felt sense of I. You know, on, a, on an even more subtle level, on the atomic you know, level, it's mostly empty space. You know, if you take just all the space between the atom, the nucleus and the electrons, it said, I read someplace, that if you take all the space away from the matter of the body, what's left is matter the size of a particle of dust. Yep, that's me. <laughs> Ramana Maharshi, who was one of the great, great saints and sages of India of the last century, he, he wrote... He said, to identify with the body and yet seek happiness is like attempting to cross a river on the back of an alligator. He was so identified with this body. And we know what happens to it. You know, there's this inevitable process of you know, getting old and aging and getting sick and dying. Why are we identified with it? Because we don't see it clear. If we had x-ray vision, you know, and could really see what it is, I think there would be a lot less attachment. And with less attachment to it, there would be much less fear of death. And there'd be less attachment in clinging to other people's bodies. And much less fear of loss. So there's a lot in this. You know, this is, this is not a trivial matter. This really gets to the heart of how we understand the nature of things, the world, our lives, what creates suffering, where the freedom is. We create this felt sense of I very commonly, not only in our identification with the body, but in our identification with thoughts, the myriad, endless thoughts that are arising in the mind. 
And we get lost in and identified with these thoughts. I'm planning, I'm judging, I'm remembering, I'm... We're adding the I. A thought is happening. That's all that's going on. A thought is arising, but then we, through not seeing it clearly, we add the sense of self. We live mostly in the world of our mental projections. You know, we have so many thoughts about ourselves and about other people. We're often lost in these concepts that aren't even true. We're just, we're just making them up, but the thoughts arise and we believe it. One point when my teacher, Sayada Upandita, was here, first time in 1984, he's a very, he's, he's coming next week to the Forest Refuge for a month. Very strict, demanding teacher. I mean, really fierce. He's like a fierce old Zen master. So the course was very intense. You know. so I was doing walking meditation just outside here, you know, the little patio. And I glanced up at the room he was staying, and I saw him looking down, watching me walk. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. <laughs> you know, I Pretended, at least, to be more mindful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really slow down and just lift, move, place. <laughs> you know, so I do a length or two and I glance up and he's still watching me. So again, I just, you know, try to be really impeccable, you know, and walking, walking, walking. And then glance up, he's still watching. Well, after some time, I couldn't figure out why he was watching me for so long. So I look up a little more closely. It wasn't Upandita at all, it was a lampshade. <laughs> But I was totally in that world. You know, I had created this concept in my mind and then was living in that concept. How many judgments and thoughts have you had about other people on the retreat? Probably a lot. People you don't even know. (laughs) People you perhaps have not talked to. But that doesn't stop the mind from generating thoughts and opinions. They're no problem, really, if we don't identify with them. But the problem is, very often we do identify, we get lost in them. And it creates this sense of self. Thought is really an amazing phenomenon. I want to emphasize this because... sort of in the scope of all our experience, thought is so amazing as as a phenomenon, not the content. Because when we are lost in thought, which is often, they have tremendous power. They're like little dictators of the mind. You know, and our thoughts, which are just conditioned by all the forces of our lives, these thoughts are arising, do this, do that, go here, go there, you know, all kinds of things. And they run our lives. They drive our lives. But what's so amazing is that this phenomena, which has so much power, when we're unaware of them, are seen to be completely empty and insubstantial when we are aware. You know, and you've had that experience a lot, being lost you know, many times in a thought, and then at a certain point we become mindful and we see nothing. The thought is like this little blip of energy. It's little more than nothing. So it's quite striking. You know, and it really points to the essential, essential importance of becoming mindful of our own minds. You know, why, what's going on in the world? It's people acting out their thoughts and feelings. You know, and all the violence and all the suffering and all So this is this is really important. The only power thoughts have is the power we give to them. To the degree that we are mindful, that we're aware, that we've trained our minds, we then are able to choose. Is this thought skillful? Is it helpful? Is it onward leading? Is this thought useless? Which most of them are. 
Can I just let it go? You know, it's like coming out of a movie, a really good movie, where we've been completely absorbed in the movie and completely in the story. And then that moment of coming out of the theater and that that moment like of a reality shift, oh yeah, all of that was just a movie. Well, we are lost in the movies of our minds. And mindfulness, the practice, helps us to awaken, to come out of the theater. So the sense of self arises, the felt sense, when we identify with thoughts. It arises very strongly when we identify with emotions. Emotions, as we all know, are powerful energies. And in some ways, it's what we most personalize. Even when we see kind of thoughts coming and going and sensations coming and going, when a strong emotion hits, that's me. That's who I am. But again, when we take the time to look carefully, which is the whole purpose of a retreat, we see that each emotion is also arising out of conditions. You know, like the rainbow. Steve Mann, it's just conditions come together, a rainbow appears. Certain conditions come together, an emotion arises, each expressing its own nature. It's love which loves. It's fear, which fears. It's joy, which joys. Anger, angers. There's no one behind it who's having it. These emotions are arising when the conditions are present for it to arise. The conditions change, the emotions dissipate, just like a cloud in the sky. Clouds are formed and dissolve. They have no roots, they have no home. Emotions happen in just the same way. But when we're not aware, you know, when we're overpowered by the emotion, there's very much that felt sense, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm afraid. The I is extra. The I is added to it. We build the skyscraper of self on top of momentary changing conditions. One point in my practice was going through long periods of fear, really intense fear. And it wasn't particularly related to anything, it was just like primal fear. You know, at one point it was so strong, I was just sitting and I was afraid just to go from sitting position to standing position. <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's how primal I was. Yeah. So I had been, this had been going on. I'd been working you know, with this for quite a long time. And at one point, I was teaching with a colleague down in Texas. It was just, you know, we were taking a walk together after lunch. <clears throat> and I was going on and on about my fear. You know, and it just felt so, you know, who I was. And I was creating this whole story <clears throat> of myself, of being such a fearful person, and it's going to take 35 years of therapy to unwind this. And You know, I was just creating this huge, huge sense of my fearful self. And at one point in the, you know, walk, she just turns to me and she says, you know, it's only a mind state. And it's something I had said to people tens of thousands of times. <laughs> You know, but sometimes, you know, you know, the moment, sometimes you're just in the right moment to hear something, you know, and something you may have heard many times before, but something is just right. Well, in that moment, it was like that. Oh, yeah, it's just a mind state. That's all. It's, fear is arising when the certain conditions are there. That's all. I didn't have to create this whole self-story around it. And it's tremendously liberating. This doesn't mean that we withdraw from emotion. We're totally open to feel whatever is arising. It's simply learning, and this takes a lot of practice. This is not easy to do. But it it can be done to some extent with practice. We were open to the emotion, we're feeling it, but we're not identified with it. We're not claiming it as mine.
we can do this more easily when we begin to see clearly what conditions the emotion. You know, when we begin to see the cause of the emotion. I had an interesting experience with this. I was on retreat and I was doing some walking and I think I was, it was after lunch and I was kind of walking around the loop. And I thought of something uh, that was about to happen that I anticipated a lot of trouble with. You know, there was some meeting or I don't remember the details now, but it was a thought of some anticipated difficulty in the future. And as soon as the thought came, as soon as that thought came, I could feel this rush of anger, you know, in my whole system. But I was pretty mindful, you know, of the process. And so I was kind of both interested and taken aback because it was just so quick and so clear, you know. So then I kept walking and I thought, and because I was mindful, it's like the anger didn't develop into a whole big thing and it dissipated. But I got so interested in that cause and effect, I I intentionally had the thought again. I just wanted to see what would happen. So I had the thought again, and sure enough, you know, that anger just filled. So I did that a few times. And it was interesting to me because it depersonalized the whole thing. You know, I saw, yeah, if I have this kind of thought and I'm not really right there with it, you know, or it has some powerful charge to it, Some emotion will arise. Not I, not self, it's just a process. To see it in that way really enables us not to stop emotion. That's not going to happen. But it does give us the space to be with them in a much freer way. We're not so caught up, we don't drown in them. It's a very different way of relating We can also see the conditioned nature of emotions when we realize that a situation at one level of understanding will affect us in one way and another level of understanding may be completely different. This is is one of my favorite stories of Ryokan, who was an 18th century kind of hermit, Zen master, poet, it's, there are many stories. He just lived up in the mountains of Japan and you know, wandered and played with the village children and, and just this wonderful free spirit. And he wrote these wonderful poetry, a lot of haiku. So one day he came back to his little hut you know, in the cabin and he saw that his few possessions were stolen. And he didn't have much, like a cooking pot and some mats maybe. So the few things he had were stolen. So he sat down and wrote a haiku the moon at the window, the thief left it behind. Okay, so just imagine going back, going home after the retreat. Everything's stolen from your house. (laughs) The moon at the window, (laughs) the thief left it, I don't think so. Same situation. At one level of understanding, we could be really upset. At another level of awakening, another level of understanding, we could be totally at ease with it. It just points to the conditional nature of our feelings, of our emotions. We don't have to solidify them so much and take them so uh, to be so solid, to be self, to be I. They're like the clouds in the sky. The most subtle level of identification, and this this is really kind of at the very deepest aspect of our practice, the most subtle level of identification that gives birth to this felt sense of I is when we identify with consciousness or awareness itself. You know, where we create that sense of witness or observer now we may understand or glimpse or really have a deep experience 
of the changing nature of sensations in the body and thoughts and emotions, maybe we really begin to get a sense of their impermanent selfless nature. But we still have that felt sense that we are the one knowing it all. That's the last bastion of this feeling of I. So one way of working with this, you know, and just to begin to see the possibility of awareness free of self, is to uh, formulate the description of your experience in the passive voice, just as an example. Instead of I'm thinking or I'm knowing a thought, the phrase becomes a thought being known, a sound being known, a movement being known, a sensation being known. When we put it in the passive voice like that, something is known, it takes the I out of the knowing. It's just a sound is being known. The movement in a, in a step is being known. There's no I in that way of formulating it. And so it becomes a pointer to experience in that way. And I, I played with this a lot at first in the walking meditation. Because in the walking, the object is very clear. You don't have to, you know, you're not struggling to be aware of the object. Just you're taking a step and feeling the movement, feeling the sensations. Maybe just let's do an experiment for a moment. If you would just move your arm slowly and just be with the sensations of the movement, you know, the sensations in your arm, with that, that understanding, it's just sensations appearing and being known. You know, you don't have to do anything. There's no, you don't have to do anything to know them. They're just arising and being known spontaneously. Well, then the question, the further question is, known by what? And that question points us very directly at the mystery of awareness, the mystery of consciousness. What is the nature of awareness? What is the nature of this knowing? Free of I, free of self, there's no one there doing it. It's just experience, moment after moment, is effortlessly being known, known by what? You know, and when we look, we see there's nothing to find. And yet the knowing is happening. Well, to use this time, particularly on retreat, just to drop into this level of experience. As you go through the day, just moment after moment, something is being known. It could be the breath, it could be a sensation, it could be a thought, it could be an emotion, it could be a sight, a sound. Moment after moment, things are being known. If you stay, if you settle right into that, it really is the direct experiential exploration of the nature of awareness. It's not thinking about it. You're right there in this mystery. And as you're practicing in that way, we really get, begin to get a very intuitive the intuitive wisdom, the intuitive understanding of the nature of mind, the nature of consciousness. The Buddha gave a very powerful and direct teaching to his son, who had become a monk at age seven and then was enlightened at age 20, a very succinct teaching on the direct experience of selflessness. This is the Buddha talking to his son. He said that every aspect of the mind and body should be seen as it is with wisdom. This is not mine, 
This is not I. This is not myself. So these are words that have great power which we can bring into our practice. Whatever arises throughout the day, can you hold it? Can you see it as it is with this wisdom? This is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. Sensations of the body, thoughts, emotions, feelings, awareness itself. And the very interesting, in some sense paradox, but not really, very interesting turn of events with this realization is that the more we drop into the experience of the selfless nature of this mind and body, we develop a deepening sense of connection. So it's not, it's not that there's a further separation. Exactly the opposite happens. And we find that we no longer have to strive in our lives for connection through particular forms of relationship, you know, in order to feel connected. Because as we experience in a fuller and fuller way selflessness, we begin to see that there is no one there to be separate. And so we're living in connection. It's not something we have to create. And in this regard, in quite a strange and mysterious way, selflessness and love become the same. They're not two different things. I'd like to close with some lines from the novelist and writer Native American woman, Louise Erdrich, who's, she's really a wonderful writer. She said, those powerful moments of true knowledge which we paper over with daily life. But every so often, something shatters like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. That was such a beautiful expression of what meditation is all about. Seeing how we paper over those true, powerful moments of true knowledge. And then every so often and increasingly, these concepts shatter. We go beyond the concepts and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. The breath being known, the sound being known. May the merit of our practice be dedicated to the welfare and the happiness and the liberation of all beings. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.